0: continue through the Psalms, the book of the Psalms, and find ourselves in chapter 19 this morning, Psalm chapter 19, and I I believe we do serve a Savior who is stronger than darkness. Indeed, He is brighter than the light of the sun, Revelation tells us, in that day of the new heavens and new earth. We won't even need the sun, for the light of the Lamb will illumine us. And I don't think we have to wait for the book of Revelation to be thinking of that truth or that reality. Indeed, I believe Psalm chapter 19 verses 1 through 6 is giving us a preview of that coming attraction, of that reality. And so we're going to hear from God this morning through His Word in Psalm chapter 19, just the, the first half, verses 1 through 6. And if you would join me in standing for the reading of God's word, I would greatly appreciate that. Psalm 19, hear now the word of God. For the choir director, a psalm of David, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are their words without their voice being heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens. And it's circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Would you pray with me? God, help us to see and to understand what you have told us in this psalm, God, and then for our hearts to be renewed by the hearing of your word and by the glory of Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Psalm 19 for many of you, is likely a familiar psalm. It's another psalm of David. It's another psalm written for the choir director or unto the end, as many Hebrew and Christian scholars uh, determined that that word meant for centuries. For the last 1,500 years or so, though, the first six verses of this psalm have really been read as being about God's creation. Kind of go outside and look at the sky and think about God look at the sun and look how it always rises and sets and think about God. But that is not always how Psalm chapter 19, verses 1 through 6 have been read. Indeed, in the first five centuries of the church, the prevailing interpretation of this psalm was very different. It was believed that this was a psalm about the praise of God's, not S-U-N, but S-O-N, who would dominate from to shining sea, from one end of the earth to the other. This is, interesting enough, also how the Apostle Paul read the psalm. It's how he understood it. In Romans chapter 10, he quotes from Psalm 19, verse 4, and he, he quotes it to say that the Hebrew people have heard the gospel going out, and that that was prophesied in Psalm chapter 19. He says these words, So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ but i say surely they have not they have never heard have they indeed they have their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the end of the world romans chapter 10 verses 17 and 18 in other words did you did you catch that paul says that the hearing of the gospel is necessary for saving faith and that His Hebrew brethren, his Jewish brethren, are without excuse because they have heard the gospel, the word of Christ. And then he quotes from Psalm 19, verse 4, to say that they should have known that that was going to happen. And they're hearing the gospel, but they're still rejecting the glory of God's Son. Now, if you've always read Psalm 19, 1 through 6, about sort of going outside and seeing the stars, and knowing that God exists, then then you might struggle with this message a little bit this morning, but I'm going to ask for your, for your patience. Uh, I spent about 10 weeks diving into these six verses in seminary because I was so enamored with the differences in the interpretive views of the psalm, and so I'm going to take you into a little bit of a, a seminary paper where we dive into each one of these verses and try to understand what God is saying. So I ask for your patience this morning. In a sermon that I'm calling, The Message of the Heavens is the Glory of the Son. S-O-N. Before we dive in, we do know that creation points to the glory of a creator. Romans chapter 1, verse 21, Paul says, Since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood, How? through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. But Paul also tells us of a problem in Romans chapter 1. While the creation testifies to the glory of of the Creator, no one gets the memo. No one gets the memo because they don't know the Lord. And apart from knowing Christ, you don't walk outside and see the stars and go, there must be a God. Instead, you walk outside and you start to worship the stars. All of world history tells us this, that people take creation and they idolize creation rather than worship the creator, which is exactly what Paul tells us happens. So creation is insufficient for us to know God, not because God is deficient, but because we are deficient. We don't get the message. You say, well, that doesn't sound right. I go outside and see the stars and think of God. Well, of course you do, because you know God. You know the story. You've been given the Christian worldview. And so if your children are raised in a Christian worldview, then they can go on a mountaintop and enjoy the fall foliage and they can go, wow, God is amazing. But if you don't know the story of the God who made it all, then you'd never get to God. You get to these lesser gods, these lesser things that you idolize rather than God himself. So the creative witness of creation only leads to condemnation, never to salvation. The only way that someone can be saved is by hearing the gospel, the good news of God who made it all, to whom we are accountable, and therefore we must surrender. And if you don't hear that message, you'll never hear the witness of creation. So what in the world is Psalm 19 about then? I believe it's about this, enjoying the presence of God's Son, S-O-N. And to enjoy the presence of God's Son, we must hear heaven's message. We must get the message to the ends of the earth, and we must be united with the King of heaven. First, we need to hear the message of the heavens or heaven's message. Verse 1 In that verse, we learn that there's a message that consumes the attention of the heavens and of the expanse. It's the message of the glory of God and the work of His hands. The heavens are telling the glory of God. The word are telling is continual. They never stop telling the glory of God. The word means to add up or to count or to count again or to enumerate. The glory of God refers to the weightiness of God, His inestimable worth. It's a glory of which we have fallen short because of sin, and yet it is a glory that in the heavens is told and told and told and told. How is it that we could add up the glory of God? We can't. We just have to keep on adding. I think about my kids when they first learned of the concept of infinity. Well, Dad, when do I get to infinity? Well, you we just keep counting. So it is with the glory of God. The heavens just keep on saying, God is glorious. When will we ever add up the glory of God? We just can't do it. No one will ever add up the weight of God's glory. But the heavens will never cease to try as they keep on telling this message, God is glorious. God is glorious. That's the message of the heavens. Now verse 1 presents us with some interesting choices. Is David talking about the skies outside, or is he talking about a different heavens, the, the invisible place where God dwells, the dwelling place of Yahweh and His heavenly hosts? Or is it perhaps both? Most commentators today, if you've got a study Bible, will argue that it's the physical heavens or the physical sky that is in view, and they might be right, but if they are, the sky that he's talking about is not the one that you go outside and see, but it's the one that is created by God in Genesis 1. Now, you would say, well, that's the same sky. Yes, it is, but he's saying the skies that we read about in Genesis 1 and 2, the heavens and the earth, the message that God is creator tells us of the glory of God. And you've got to hear the message of God as creator of heaven and earth in order to understand the gospel. Or, this might be about the unseen heavens and the unseen expanse. In Ezekiel's vision of God's glory, the expanse refers not to the physical sky, but to the canopy that's over the angelic beings and under the throne. If you could picture the angels being drawn to the glory of God and yet somehow restrained from touching the throne and saying, God is holy, God is holy, God is glorious. We are attracted like a moth to a flame to the glory of God. And there's this canopy over them. That's the expanse in Ezekiel's vision in chapter 1. The only other time this word expanse occurs in all of the Psalms is in Psalm 150 verse 1 where it refers to the expanse of Yahweh's power and to His sanctuary. In other words, this unseen place of God's presence. While the visible heavens will one day roll up like a scroll, Isaiah 34, 4, the unseen place where the Lord rules and reigns in righteousness will never cease to declare the glory of God. And notice that God's glory is closely associated with the work of his hands. Do you see that in the second half of verse one? We know God's glory through his creative work and through his recreative work, that he comes and he condescends and he enters time and space and takes on our humanity and goes to the cross so that we could be remade or recreated in Christ. The word declared in verse one occurs. In the Hebrew language in a form that is always used of personal communication. In other words, there's more than just the sky talking here. There's, there's a creator God who is speaking to his creation. So whatever's being communicated in Psalm 19, it is not impersonal communication. It is not wordless communication. It is Verbal, it carries information, it is a personal declaration that reverberates throughout the heavens. God is glorious, and we must keep on declaring the work of His hands. So, what about the work of His hands? You say, Well, that's the moon and the stars and the sky above, and it very well may be that the heavens that are created in Genesis 1 and 2, we see the work of his hands in that story. But the work of his hands also in the Old Testament can describe God's work in salvation. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 12, the work of God's hands refers to his saving work. Indeed, throughout the Psalms, it is not God's physical creation That debuts most often, but the work of his hands as the deliverance or the healing or the salvation of God's people. So, in the unseen heavens, where the Lord is ruling and reigning, there is a continual telling of God's glory and a declaring of the work of his hands. And David promises that this message, the message of the glory of God and of the saving work of his hands, that it's a message that will be heard. It's not something that's just going to be out there in the skies that you might go up on a mountaintop and see one day. It's a message that somebody's going to tell, somebody's going to declare. Look at it in verse 2. Day to day and night to night. What is that? These are called distributive expressions. In other words, the whole range of time will be covered with speech. David anticipates a day, When the message of God's glory and His saving power is going to be proclaimed around the clock and it's going to be known around the world. What do you think we're going to do in eternity when there's every tribe and tongue and language and nation there around the throne? What are we going to be talking about? We're not going to be talking about the Hokies or the Who's. We're going to be talking about the glory of God and his saving power which rescued us because he entered into his fallen creation to remake it in his son so that we could forever say what the heavens have always known God is glorious and he has mighty works and mighty power in his hand that's what we'll be doing in eternity. Notice how the message comes from the heavens it comes in power church it pours forth it is an unstoppable gushing forth of speech that declares that God is glorious when we were in Puerto Rico and we heard the stories of what it was like when the hurricane came through in 2017 and it dumped feet of water on the mountaintop. If you can envision an island with a mountain range in the middle and water comes pouring down on top of the mountain and there's nowhere for the water to go but straight down the mountain into the streets and into the homes, that's the way the the picture of this speech is When it's pouring out, it's rushing out, it's rushing down in power. There's nothing that you can do to stop it. There's this gushing forth of knowledge and information that resonates from the heavens. David is envisioning the powerful proclamation of the gospel. Jesus lives a perfect life. He dies an atoning death and he is raised on the third day. Is that true? That's why we're here, right? He is risen. And then, that's what he does. He stops, right? He's raised and it's done. No. We forget the ascension, and the ascension is so important. He ascends to the right hand of his Father. Philippians 2 tells us he's given the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, that nations would bow before him. And that's where we are in Psalm 19. David is telling us that he's going to ascend. He's going to pour out the Holy Spirit. Do you remember Acts 1.8? And he gives power, divine power, for proclaiming the gospel with the result that, look at the second line of verse 2, knowledge is revealed. Speech goes out and knowledge is revealed. This doesn't just mean that people go outside and look at the stars and they go, oh, there might be a God out there. It's not information transfer. It's a transformation of the heart. It refers to experiential knowledge to know the power of God. The gospel's going to go out and people are going to know experientially the power of God. And why do you come to know the power of God? So that you can tell someone else. So that they might know the power of God. This is the sort of thing that we read about in Acts. And in the establishment of churches like at Thessalonica. When Paul says our gospel did not come to you in word only. But also in power. And in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. At North Roanoke baptist church we're going to keep preaching the gospel and the power of the holy spirit expecting that as we call people up into salvation they will gloriously be redeemed and come to know the power of god in their lives so that they can then become become proclaimers of the gospel themselves we live in the days that david foresaw the heavens message of the glory of God and the saving work of His hands has come to us. Why? So that we could have the knowledge of the Lord. John 17.3 says, This is eternal life. That, you, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Have you heard the message of the heavens? Do you know the God of glory and the God of incredible grace who came down and allowed himself to be nailed to the cross so that when he was raised, he could remake you in Christ. And deliver you to a new heavens and a new earth where you will say with the heavens, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. we got to hear the message of the heavens. And secondly, we've got to take part in taking that message to the ends of the earth The third verse of this psalm is the verse that confuses people because it could be translated in one of two ways. It could be translated as the New American Standard translates it, like this, there is no speech, nor are there words, their voice is not heard. Or, it could be translated, there is no speech, there is no language without their voice being heard two very different readings there's speech that isn't heard or there's speech that is heard everywhere and I submit to you that the reading that has to be the one that is correct is the one where speech is everywhere heard there's no place there's no language where the voice of the heavens is not heard there's a day that's coming that in every tribe and tongue and language and nation it will be heard and the reason that has to be what the Psalm says is because that's the way Paul reads it when he quotes from it in Romans chapter 10. Which means this isn't impersonal wordless speech. It's real communication. Verse 3 is simply extending the prophecy of verses 1 and 2. Wherever words are spoken and in whatever language they are spoken. The telling of the glory of God and the declaring of the work of his hands. It's going to be heard. This is the Tower of Babel in reverse. You remember the Tower of Babel? Men go up, they're going to build a great tower. Why? To make a name for themselves rather than to honor the name which is above every name. And so God comes down. I love that. They build this really impressive high tower, and God comes down. And He confuses their speech, and He destroys their construction project, and you remember what happens? They scatter all over the earth into all these languages. But what's going to happen one day is God's going to come down again, not to scatter people, not to confuse their language, but to redeem every tribe, tongue, language, and nation. And He's going to go to a cross, and then He's going to empower His apostles and His church, and He's going to scatter His church to go to the scattered, so that they might not make a name for themselves, but they might hear the gospel and glory, in the a name which is above every other name. The gospel is going to go out. And there's no place and no people among whom it will not be heard. David says. Paul was living in the time of the fulfillment of the prophecy of Psalm 19. And so are we. From Pentecost to right now. The apostles and now the church have been empowered to boldly proclaim this message of the heavens. Their line, verse 4, has gone forth. Paul says the word line is actually the word voice. I'm going to follow the Apostle Paul, the Hebrew scholars. It's a very infrequently used word, aren't sure what it means. But Paul says that it's voice. Their voice has gone forth once for all. Culture might change, people might change, but the gospel does not change. There is no new information that we need to get in order to communicate the gospel. We have it. We don't need any special glasses. We don't need to dig up any plates. We don't need to modify the Bible. We don't need to go to a secret society where we have secret rituals that we add to the gospel. We don't need any tips, any tricks, any insider information. Psalm 119.89 says this, Forever, O Lord, Your Word is settled in heaven. It's fixed. It's determined. And it's come from heaven to earth in the person of Jesus Christ who poured out His Holy Spirit so we don't need to be intimidated we don't need to be worried about whether we're going to get our words exactly right we've got the gospel and we've got it on the inside because the spirit has changed us all we've got to do is go tell heaven has gone public with the greatest information ever shared and we have a role to play if we have heard what we just sang, Jesus saves, Jesus saves, our role is to give like crazy, to pray like crazy, to sin like crazy, to ask that God would raise up missionaries from our church, and it's to go and to speak this gospel until the heavens, until, excuse me, until the ends of the earth have heard the heavens message, Jesus saves, Jesus saves. And we know that the message is going to get there because the Father has said to His Son in Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Christ has come, and He has done what we could not. He has poured out His Spirit into our lives so that we can be empowered to share the gospel as He wins the nations through our witness to His saving power we've got to tell we've got to tell we've got to hear and then we've got to tell and then finally we've got to make sure we know this son we've got to know it you you can hear it but you're not going to be too interested in telling it unless you know the king of the heavens we've got to be united with God's son the king of heaven now what's interesting is Is Paul, excuse me, David is going to use the sunshine, the S U N, as a metaphor for the S O N, which is unfortunate for us in English because sun and sun sound exactly the same. In Hebrew, they don't. So it's not confusing. All right? So I'm going to use the word sunshine for the ball of light in the sky. And I'm going to use the word sun to describe Jesus, the Son of God. Is that clear as mud? Sunshine and S-O-N, the Son of God. So in the the third line of verse 4, David takes a hard shift from the heavens to the sun. Shine. David uses the physical sunshine to tell us about God's Son. As the light of the sun makes the light of the stars disappear so does the glory of God's Son dominate the heavens where God dwells. So David is using the sunshine as a metaphor for God's Son, and that's not unusual. There are some interpreters who will be like, well, that's preposterous. David wouldn't do this. This is clearly about just the sun rising and setting and rising and setting. There's no deeper meaning. Well... David gives us a lot of reasons to think there is a deeper meaning. But first, let's establish that God's Son and the sunshine are often compared throughout Scripture, not just here. Consider some key examples. In David's last words, he says, He who rules over men righteously, who rules in the fear of God, is as the light of the morning when the sun rises. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, the Lord says, "But for you who fear my name, the Son of righteousness will rise with healing in His wings." In Psalm 84:11 it says, "The Lord God is a sun and a shield." When Paul encounters Christ on the road to Damascus, what does he see? A light from heaven that is brighter than the sun. And in the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21:23, the city has no need of the sun, for the glory of God has illumined it, and his lamp. Is the Lamb. The fact that David uses the sunshine as a metaphor for the Son of God is clear. And it becomes even more clear in the Hebrew language because he uses the pronoun he to describe the sunshine. Literally, if you were going to translate this psalm literally, it would say, He is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, he rejoices as a strong man to run his course. His rising is from one end of the heavens, and His circuit to the other end of, him, uh, end of them, and there is nothing hidden from His Son. And the Son, in the last line of verse 4, dwells, interestingly, do you catch it? In a tent. Now, where have we read the tent throughout the Old Testament? Where have we read that word? Does it sound a lot like tabernacle? That's because that's exactly what it's referring to. It's the same language It's the... You remember the tent of meeting that the Israelites communed with God in, Exodus 33, and the tent of testimony describing the heavens as a tent for the sun suggests to us that the sunshine represents the Lord who often is portrayed as dwelling in a tent or a tabernacle. But it isn't just the tent that tells us David is talking about more than the sunshine. In verse 5, he proceeds to call the sunshine a bridegroom. Now, nowhere else in the Bible is the sunshine called the bridegroom. But the Lord and the Son of God are often called the bridegroom. Right? The Lord is, Lord is called a bridegroom in Isaiah 62.5. We learn that God will rejoice over restored Jerusalem as the bridegroom rejoices over his bride. In Hosea chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. The Lord will betroth himself to his people in Matthew 25 one through 13. Jesus compares himself to the bridegroom and in eternity, the Son of the Lamb, the Son of God and the Lamb gets his purified bride. Jesus is the bridegroom, and when he comes from his chamber, you see that word? which is another word in the Old Testament that is used of God's final coming to rescue his people, when he comes out of his chamber, he will make all things new. He will get his bride. The son is described as a bridegroom. He's described as one coming from a chamber. And he's also described as a strong man in verse 5. Now this word strong man in other places in the Old Testament always refers to people, or to the Lord God Himself, never to inanimate objects like the sunshine. It refers to men like David or even the Lord Himself. Moses says in Exodus 15, verse 3: The Lord is a warrior or a strong man. The Lord is his name. In Isaiah 42, 13, and Zephaniah 3:17, and Psalm 45, 3, we see similar things. In Zephaniah, the prophet anticipates Israel's restoration, and he says this. The Lord your God is in your midst, a victorious warrior. He will exult over you with joy. He will be quiet in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy, a victorious warrior or a strong man. You see, church, as a bridegroom, the Lord comes in salvation of his people. And as a strong man, he comes in judgment and vindication of his people. Like the sun rises from one end of the heavens. And makes a circuit to the other end of the heavens. And nothing can stand in its way. So it is with Jesus. When He returns, He will run His course. And nothing will knock Him off course. And in the day of His return, there's not going to be any place on earth that anyone can go to escape the heat and the penetrating presence of the Son of God. The word hidden in verse 6 is associated... With the hope of trying to escape God's notice. Like maybe we can just get away from the sun. Maybe we can get away from Christ. But when Christ returns, no one will be able to hide. Interestingly, the word translated heat at the end of verse 6 is actually just another word for sun. So the last line of this verse, verse 6, literally says, Nothing will be hidden from the sunshine or from His sunshine. You say, why is that important? I think it's important because here's what David is saying. You're not just going to have to deal with the heat of the sun. You're going to have to deal with the son of God himself. The verse is telling us that there's no one who can escape the righteous judgment of the son of God. And so the question this morning is simple. Are you ready for the return of God's son? When the heat of God's sun comes, is it going to warm you up or is it going to burn you like a crisp? When Jesus breaks the eastern sky, will you be raised to life everlasting or go to everlasting punishment? Will you know Jesus as your bridegroom or as the warrior strongman who tramples over those who have rejected His gospel? Nothing will be hidden from the sun, And if you know this sun. Will you share this message of the heavens with others? God is glorious. He has a son who has come and performed a miraculous work through his nail-scarred hands. And if you will deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Him and surrender all that you have, all that you desire to be to Him and say, God, whatever you ask of me, whatever you command of me, let my life be for the glory of your Son. If that's your need this morning, we would invite you as we stand and sing in just a moment to come and know the glory of Christ the Son. Would you pray with me? King Jesus, we ask, Lord, that we would not just be pew sitters, that we would not just be Sunday school attenders. God, that we wouldn't just come and go to our various programs and be comfortable. God, there's coming a day when a whole lot of people are going to be uncomfortable because they do not know Christ. And Lord, we want as many people as possible to know this side of their death and this side of your coming again, that Jesus is glorious, and that Jesus saves. So God, motivate us to get up and to get out and to get sharing the greatest news that anyone could ever hear. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.